Hello, this is Chris Jansen. Welcome to the End Evil Podcast. Every Thursday at 6 p.m. live on the One Great Work Network. And I'm also streaming to Facebook to the End Evil page. Welcome, folks. Welcome back to another week. We're going to dive deep into the subject of money again this week. The End Evil Podcast is dedicated to ending evil whenever and wherever possible. I think that concept is really hard for some people to fathom. What do you mean, end evil? How could we do that? Is that even possible? Well, maybe it is, maybe it isn't. I tend to imagine that it's a possibility, just like anything can be beginning or ended. You know, everything has its beginning and end. Evil can be diminished, certainly. Think of it like uh, cleaning the room. When you clean your room, you get it looking good. You get all the surfaces cleaned off. You get things put away. Well, we could do that in our world. We could get it to where evil is not the predominant force as it is now. So for those of you who have come to recognize that our world is very much an evil place, there are evil things going on all around that are accepted as good and they're not good. And that's why the End Evil podcast is here, is to clarify the difference between good and evil, to get us in our right place, in our moral right place and in a spiritual place because ultimately the solution to the problems that we're having in the world are never going to come through political means they're never going to come through government they're going to come through individuals becoming more spiritual people and making moral choices and that means not stealing from one another so the subject of money comes up because it is a very uh, predominant force in our world around us, and the American dollar is the big hitter right now in so many ways for those of us in our experience here in America anyway. And so I chose the American dollar as a subject matter, and we're going to look a little deeper at that today. So thank you for coming, and hopefully this podcast can bring to you, the listener, some things to think about in maybe slightly different perspectives than you might have had before, some ways to discuss things with others, which is always a challenge for anyone who has gone down the path of looking deeper into things and studying conspiratorial subjects 
and looking at truth or the subject of freedom, they're hard subjects to discuss with others. So I think it helps to bring up these subject matters and look at them in different ways and hear different voices and opinions and perspectives on how to handle these things. The End Evil podcast is dedicated to the book, The End of All Evil by Jeremy Locke. This book can be easily downloaded. I think New New Earth University has it. Just type in The End of All Evil and you'll find a free PDF online. Really easy, quick read, and it's a great book. It has really important core information that's put out in such a way that it's simple to read and sticks in your mind. And I love sharing quotes from the book. The way that people would share um, quotes from the Bible, I like to share quotes from the end, evil, the end of All Evil by Jeremy Locke. I discovered this book through the podcast, What on Earth is Happening? And Mark Passio is also the main inspiration for this show. And he's provided the platform, the One Great Work Network, that's given me this outlet to have this live show. So thank you, Mark, for that. And listeners of the One Great Work Network and those who have contributed and helped with this project. Much appreciation. I wanted to show you a quick little clip of um, how to find... I had been doing these shows every week, and as I finish them, I work on getting them uploaded to my website, which sometimes takes me a week or two, but I wanted to show you the way to find my website. If you type in here, let me uh, put you on the big screen here so you can see this. If you type in endevil.life, it'll take you to the page and see up in the corner there, there's a little menu and click on podcast. And the very top one on the list right now says Jab or Wacky. I would like you to check out Jab or Wacky. It's actually a two-part series I did recently about scientism. And I wanted you to see there's lots of links and information if you check out this page. And I try to do this in many of my podcast episodes. So all that information is there if people want a point of reference or somewhere to find links quickly. You can go to endevil.life. And look up one of the episodes or um, search, use a search term. I try to enter a few of the important search terms since that episode was all about getting a jab or scientism or COVID, you know, that's a good place to go. So check out endevil.life and there's a, a lot of information in the show notes on many of those shows. So I'd recommend going through and clicking on some of those. But moving right along, let's talk about money. How do you use money? What is money? I decided to look up the etymology of the word money. I usually look up my derivations of words on etymonline, which is E-T-Y-M-O-N-L-I-N-E dot com. And he does a pretty good job on that website of bringing multiple points from literature and different uh, derivations from various ancient languages, and he'll give you multiple. And so it gives you some comparison, which I really appreciate. So money comes from funds, means, anything convertible into money, coinage, coin, or metal currency, money, coin, currency, or change, 
a place for coining money, a mint, coined money, coinage. And then uh, it says at the end, from Moneta, a title or surname of the Roman goddess Juno, near whose temple on the Cap- Capitoline Hill money was coined in, and in which the precious metal was stored. From Monere, advise, warn, admonish. So coins, currency. The word currency is really interesting because uh, we use that word in electrical Electricity, you know, electrical current. So making a circuit, something that we think of something moving like the current in water. We're flowing in a current. So these things denote energy moving, the movement of energy. And then change is something shifting from one thing to another. So how do we get our change? How do we get back our change? We keep demanding change and not getting it. What's going on, Obama? Where was the change? You know, we asked for the change and we never got it. All we got was our money taken away, stolen, and hence the problem, our money being stolen by government, one of the problems, and people accepting that as being okay, taxes, you know, police pulling you over and extorting you for your hard-earned money, and that's the subject we're going to talk about today, hard-earned money. What does that mean? Is that a good thing? Well, there's certain aspects of hard work that are good. There's certain aspects of money that could be good. But like we talked about last week, because of things like the Federal Reserve and a monopoly on money and how it's made and how it's printed, that creates a big problem of it being a moral thing to have in society. So being ruled by an immoral force creates this whole evil situation that we get stuck in, and many of us feel trapped. And this is sort of a way of understanding the type of slavery that we're experiencing, even though formally it hasn't been called slavery. We can see how many of our choices are limited by our access to money. And people that are born in different situations have a more difficult time getting that access to money. So it's not um, necessarily a fair system, but many people will argue that it's still good. And I am arguing that because of things like the Federal Reserve, which I began discussing last week, that money has become an evil thing. Money does not need to be evil, but it is in its current form because it is also – there's so much about it that represents wrongdoing. And we'll get a little more into that here. Another term you'll hear tossed around on the internet, if you start looking into money, if you start doing a little research, is the term fiat money. So I had to look that up myself. Fiat money is a currency established as money, often by government regulation. Fiat money does not have intrinsic value and does not have use value. It has value only because a government maintains its value or because parties engaging in exchange agree on its value. So this is a really important concept about money is understanding that it's really only can exist if we agree upon it. You know, it exists as much as we believe it exists. When people all agree, yes, let's use this, these shells for money and they start trading these shells and everybody believes that they represent their energy that they're exchanging and um, you get real things for it, then it it works. It becomes real. And that's been going on for quite some time with this money. Even though it's heavily manipulated, 
people still believe it because it works. Because you go to the grocery store, you give them some of this, these green pieces of paper, and they give you your food. So it's still working. It's still agreed on. But it's not really backed by real value. As we see, if we take a look at how banks use money, which we started to touch on last week, money's created out of nothing, out of debt, actually. Um, fake money is created that becomes somewhat real. So it's an interesting concept to think about this idea of fiat money, that this stuff that we hold so much importance you know, only has value if we believe in it, and the value is manipulated, and um, it's not really backed by a real asset, should we say. As one time there was a gold standard, and at that time, you know, and there was actually for every dollar there was gold. You could trade your money in for gold, and it would be worth the same thing. And that kept a certain uh, cap on how money could be used. However, these type of people that have managed to manipulate our system and get themselves in a monopoly situation of power use this whole form of what we call fiat money and this whole system, which is a shell game, a con of sorts, the Federal Reserve, to enact a one um, a currency for everyone that they own the rights to. So fiat means it has been a decreed, then agreed on. So it's kind of like just saying, this is real, you know, taking a stone and saying, this is money. Someone decided by authoritative sanction that it was let it be done is used in opening of medieval Latin proclamations and commands. Um, that's the Latin, fiat, let it be done. That is where the word comes from. Someone says, let this be. This is now money. Uh, so I was looking up fiat, and and that's where I came across the medieval Latin. It also um, meant be done, to become, to come into existence, to grow, to make, to do, to decree, to command or order. So this whole idea of fiat is to create out of nothing. Now, I found an um, interesting website on the subject of fiat money when I typed it in. And I, I think this is interesting for you if you're watching, for those of you who do your own research on things. You're sort of getting to see my process. You know, as I'm working on one of these presentations, I'll look up terms that I've come across and podcasts and books that I've studied and just see what Google gives me, see what um, Firefox gives me. Just type in some of these words and click through some of the websites. One of the websites I came across was called Profilus.com, and this is partly in the beginning of the show why I showed you endevil.life, where I tend to collect all the research I've done, and you can find links there later when I publish this episode. You'll be able to find those links. It'll probably be a couple weeks from now, the way things are going. Um, the, so here was an article on this Profilus.com called Summary, The Pros and Cons of Printing Money Out of Thin Air. And the following are the summary of the advantages and arguments for fiat money. So this website's trying to take an even look. Um, let's read what they wrote. It provides the government with the capacity to exert considerable control over the economy through the monetary policy of the central bank. 
The Great Depression demonstrated how abandoning commodity money to print money out of thin air could effectively stimulate the economy. Fiat money is more practical than money, tied to gold or silver because it does not depend on a finite resource that requires costly production. Population growth and increased economic activity would outpace the capacity of societies to mine precious metals. Okay, so those were the four the pro-fiat money arguments on this website. And here are the counter-arguments or criticisms they put on this website. It can lose its value due to inflation or become worthless during hyperinflation for the simplest reason that it is not backed up by physical reserves. History shows that some governments can have the propensity to overprint money, thus artificially increasing the money supply. Money is essentially created in in Infinitely, without intrinsically valuable commodity or more specifically out of thin air at the expense of inflation. It artificially lowers interest rates and provides incentives for taking excessive risks, thus leading to an escalating solvency crisis. So here we have a perfect example um, of how a, a website will take and print all these reasons and never in any of these reasons is, is the problem of morality. Or spirituality, people just um, so often in the in our world, in our society, in our cultures, we see uh, just an abandonment of the idea of morality and spirituality as if it doesn't belong in the arguments. However, you know it should be the primary argument from my point of view. So now let's take a little look at let's take a big look at some of the symbolism going on on the dollar bills. Um, I showed a little clip in the beginning of how the dollar bills, the 20s, the 50s, the 100s, if you put them next to Monopoly money, you'll see that it's virtually the same coloring going on. Very interesting uh, synchronicity or planned, but that is the case. But we have all this symbology. I'm sure you've heard of some of it. There's these ways you can fold dollars and find all these interesting things in there. How much of this is intended to be there and how much of it is just by chance? It seems hard to believe just by chance, especially when you look at the in-depth symbolism used and how, um, again, start doing some research and it just goes on and on. Here is a website I looked up called famguardian.com. I put in um, subject of money and banking. Symbols on the dollar was the word uh, words I typed in. Symbols on the dollar. And they had a PDF about the symbols on the dollar. So this is according to this website, famguardian.com. Not saying it's the truth. I'm just saying this is what one piece of information I came across. It seemed very interesting. The word dollar comes from the German Taylor, Taller, or Thaler, or or Daler, a name given to German coins made in 1519. Um, it was came from St. Joachim's Valley, these coins that were struck between 1520 and 1528. One side of the coin showed a crucified Christ, and on the other side it showed the image of a serpent hanging from a cross. Near the head was the abbreviation NU, and on the other side of the number, 21. The dollar sign is a symbol of the serpent on the cross. The dollar sign is a reminder to all men that spiritual healing begins with Christ. Uh, 
I'd never heard that before. I found that very interesting. And I would like to uh, encourage you to spend a little more time looking into this idea about the dollar symbol and what it means. What's interesting is that the dollar symbol actually appears nowhere on the actual dollar. This website goes on to talk about um, the Hebrew word serpent and going into some of the numbers associated with these words. I'm blanking out right now on the study of words when you change them into numbers, but there can be some interesting um, synchronicities that are found if you look up the, the numbers that are related to these words on the dollar, according to this website. But here's what they said. There's no dollar sign on the dollar bill. Despising the spiritual meaning of the dollar sign, the international bankers were able to effectively remove the symbol off the American dollar bill. You know, that rings true. That makes sense. The uh, meetings on Jekyll Island and these um, people seeking monopoly of money, these bankers seeking greed that managed to underhandedly fool people into falling into their con game that now owns most of the world has been quite effective, quite dangerous, and a lot of blood has been shed over their victories, their underhanded victories, convincing people that the Federal Reserve is a noble, upstanding part of our country. I found also a little information about the head of George Washington that I found interesting while I was going through this research. The portrait of George Washington was commissioned by Martha Washington and painted by an American artist, Gilbert Stewart, in 1796. Interestingly, the frown on his face was due to the fact that President Washington had recently been fitted with a new set of false teeth. Interesting. Yes, I thought that was... He does look like he's frowning. Unluckily, I don't have that picture up for you to look at, but you can get out a dollar and look at it yourself. The face of George Washington is in the center of the dollar bill, suggesting that the spirit of Washington is still the guiding spirit of American history. If you fold a dollar bill in half, it will fold in the center of the right eye of Washington to suggest to all Americans that we should be guided by his vision, his character, and his faith. I found some more interesting things about Washington, but we'll bring that up a little bit later. Um, the symbols on the dollar, we're going to look and talk a little bit more about the pyramid with the triangle with the eye on it. And that is what some people call the Illuminati symbol, the illuminated eye. And that is a really important aspect of this discussion. So let me take a look here. Oh, we're going to come back to it because I want to share with you this clip to catch up a little bit more about the history of the Federal Reserve. I recommend watching James Corbett's Century of Enslavement. Uh, here's a little clip from that, and then we'll get back to symbolism on the dollar. 1834 by staging a financial crisis and attempting to pin the blame on Jackson, but it's no use. On January 8, 1835, President Jackson succeeds in paying off the debt, and for the first and only time in its history, 
the United States is free from the debt chain of the bankers. In 1836, the Second Bank of the United States Charter expires, and the bank loses its status as America's central bank. It is 77 years before the bankers can regain the jewel in their crown, but it is not for lack of trying. Immediately upon the death of the bank, the banking oligarchs in England react by contracting trade, removing capital from the U.S., demanding payment in hard currency for all exports, and tightening credit. This results in a financial crisis known as the Panic of 1837, and once again Jackson's campaign to kill the bank is blamed for the crisis. Throughout the late 19th century, the United States is rocked by banking panics brought about by wild banking speculation and sharp contractions in credit. By the dawn of the 20th century, the bulk of the money in the American economy has been centralized in the hands of a small clique of industrial magnates, each with a near monopoly on a sector of the economy. There are the Astors in real estate, the Carnegies and the Schwabs in steel, the Harrimans, Stanfords, and Vanderbilts in railroads, the Millens and the Rockefellers in oil. As all of these families start to consolidate their fortunes, they gravitate naturally to the banking sector. And in this capacity, they form a network of financial interests and institutions that centered largely around one man, banking scion and increasingly America's informal central banker in the absence of a central bank, John Pierpont Morgan. John Pierpont Morgan, or Pierpont as he prefers to be called, is born in Hartford, Connecticut in 1837 to Junius Spencer Morgan, a successful banker and financier. Morgan rides his father's coattails into the banking business, and by 1871 is partnered in his own firm, the firm that was eventually to become J.P. Morgan & Company. So we had to spend a little bit of time on J.P. Morgan because uh, he's such an important name in the, in the whole history of banking. And, you know, everybody's heard this name. It's across the board because it's such a monopoly. There's so much influence of these families that were discussed in Corbett's work that it's universally known who these people are. So let's get back to the symbolism. Um, we talked about, we talked a little bit about the pyramid with the eye on top of it, which brings us to the subject of the Masons and Masonic all-seeing eye. So I found a website, what is the all-seeing eye, meaning in Freemasonry? And you hear about, you start to read about the eye of Horus or the eye of Providence. What jumps out at me is, uh, research that I remember watching from What on Earth is Happening with Mark Passio talking about the one eye and mun eye. Mon meaning one, like mono. So what is the one eye? The one eye is the all-seeing eye, talked about so often. Um, we have in movies portrayed like the eye of Sauron, right? The all-seeing eye. Yet traditionally, this eye with the rays coming out of it would symbolize you know, the all-seeing creator eye, the eye of the creator. Or as in they said, um, Masonic speaking, the great architect. So here's some information I'm going to read to you from a website that I came across called MasonicFind.com. You can see the all-seeing eye on the top Egyptian pyramid too. There it represents the eye of providence, which is a reminder that one's thoughts and actions 
are being observed at all times by force greater than us. The symbols also borrowed by Freemasonry where it symbolizes the omnipresence of the great architect of the universe or creator who is watching everything that happens in this world. Then we see um, another website I looked up, the words that are on the bill. You see there um, the one picture that has the pyramid on it with all-seeing eye. There's the two words on there, Anuit Coeptus. I'm not pronouncing that right, I'm sure, but Anuit, according to this website, greatseal.com, means to nod assent, to favor, or to smile upon. And coeptus means undertakings, or endeavors, or beginnings. <clears throat> so their interpretation, Anuit, coeptus means favors, literature gives a nod to, undertakings. Who favors? The I, providence does. The verb anuit can be either present tense or perfect tense. Therefore, an accurate translation of the motto is, Providence favors our undertakings, or Providence has favored our undertakings. <clears throat> the word are is supplied, so undertakings are providence and undertakings. It also has been translated as, He favors our undertakings, or He has prospered our endeavors. So, what does this strike you when you consider, are they talking about God, the great architect, having favor over our providence in the direction we're going with this thing? Or are they saying we are the God by creating money, and now we're watching over you, like the Eye of Sauron? That's what I tend to think, that these banksters is sort of like a joke, yeah, they are part of this Masonic groups, and they understand that there is a creator. They understand that there is the great architect, and yet they want to be gods of their own. They want to be in power because they can. Why else would God give us this power to control other people through slavery, right? So they're giving it their best shot, and they're doing a really good job of it because most people don't recognize that there is this symbology embedded right on their bills they're carrying around. And if you look under the word bill, that's an interesting word to look up to from bail. But I won't get so much into that because that wasn't in this particular research. The Latin inscription below the period pyramid reads Novus Ordo Seculorum, which translates to the new order of the ages. Does that sound familiar? Sounds like the new world order to me. This refers to a new form of government that was being established at that time or a new American era. Anuit coeptus, above the pyramid, roughly translate to endeavors are favored. So this is from uh, Wikipedia. No, this is not. This is from Ranker.com, where the article was called There Might Be Latin Numerals Disguised as 666. So apparently that is something going around on the Internet. Some people think that the Latin phrase with the Roman numerals can be interpreted as, as 666. Others reinterpreted the translation of Anuit Coeptus to mean announcing conception or secular. Well, take that as you please. To me, it just seems very uh, interesting, odd, and requiring further speculation when you realize just how much complexity there is in the symbology. Uh, 
that's embedded on these bills. Why? Why are they? Yeah, I know there's an idea of making them complex so they're hard to counterfeit, but there's always more to the symbolism, I find, when you look into the world of the occult, that which is hidden. Part of the game of these people at the top of the pyramid is to keep other people not knowing what's going on. And that's the symbology that really stands out for me with the eye on the pyramid. It's like the enlightened ones up on top having the knowledge and the realizations while the uh, rest of us are trapped down below in the pyramid not having access to the illumination or the knowledge. And that's part of what we're trying to do here is to change that dynamic and to light up that whole pyramid so it's all one big eye and we're all aware of the same thing. And when all of our one eyes are open, our third eyes are open, then we can see truth and freedom in we do not tolerate evil. And that's the world we're going to work towards with the End Evil podcast. So let's move on. I picked out a quote from Jefferson, Thomas Jefferson. Quote says, For I have sworn upon the altar of God eternal hostility against every form of tyranny over the mind of man. Thomas Jefferson. Wow, that is a pretty strong statement. For I have sworn upon the altar of God eternal hostility against every form of tyranny over the mind of man. So isn't the dollar bill and the Federal Reserve a form of hostility against the mind of man? Doesn't it not enslave us or control us or keep us into making choices that we otherwise maybe would not? Well, the knee-jerk reaction people have to this type of discussion is so similar to when you bring up the idea of anarchy. They think, how could we possibly live without government? How could we possibly live without money? You know, that is like the ground we stand on. If you pulled that rug out, we would have nothing to stand on. I think that's like so many bad habits of the alcoholic who's been drinking too many years every day. How could I ever stop drinking the alcohol? It's impossible. It's the same thing. So many bad habits we've established as humanity, as a people, is relying on a con game, basically, that is manipulated by a select few bankers, families who have control of the rate of inflation and the rate of the interest rate. And although there seems to be this facade of that all being under the wing or arms of government, it turns out that the Federal Reserve really is not completely controlled at all by the government. In fact, it may be the other way around as you dig deeper. Oh, no, I skipped the slide I really liked. I really wanted you to see this. Here we go. So this I came across in my research for this episode. A great seal. This is Benjamin Franklin's great seal design. This I'm going to read to you is from greatseal.com. In the story of America's great seal, a particularly relevant chapter is in the imagery suggested by Benjamin Franklin in August 1776. He chose the dramatic historical scene described in Exodus, where people confronted a tyrant in order to gain their freedom. In Franklin's... um, Oh, Jefferson edited Franklin's design and was recommended by the first committee for the reverse side of the Great Seal. 
a pharaoh sitting in an open chariot, a crown on his head and a sword in his hand, passing through the divided waters of the Red Sea in pursuit of the Israelites, raised from a pillar of fire in the cloud, expressive of the divine presence and command, beaming on Moses, who stands on the shore and extending his hand over the sea, causes it to overwhelm the pharaoh. The motto, rebellion to tyrants is obedience to God. So how about that for a symbol to put on our, put on our money? That would be something I would be more, uh, I wouldn't call evil. A reminder, uh, imagine if our money itself was a coin, that, a reminder that obedience is evil, that obedience to tyrants is evil, that allowing slavery is wrong and creates evil in the world. This is a good motto. Rebellion to tyrants is obedience to God. You know, if you don't like the term God, how about obedience to what is right, what is good, what is um, life? What is encouraging life is good. That which takes away from life and growth and creativity is not good. That's st- forms of stealing or destruction. Evil is the destruction of freedom. So if we uh, look at any situation where there's tyranny going on, it's our job, responsibility, our uh, duty to rebel, to be in resistance. So I suppose what I'm encouraging you to do is rethink how you see money and what it really means. In order for us to use our energy more wisely, it would take many of us human beings working together to create a new and better system. And I think that is why many people are so excited about cryptocurrency, for instance. But of course, the End Evil podcast is not going to encourage going down the road of more technology to find a solution, but going down the road of uh, spirituality and making moral choices and understanding which things are right and which things are wrong. Until we have that firm understanding, we can be easily tricked again by people in, that are trying to manipulate us. Obviously, that has worked very well through the years. So let's stop falling for the same trap. I find it very interesting all the correlations and references to God or the great engineer in the symbolism on the money and the discussion from uh, the founding fathers. And the idea being here that at the time of the founding fathers, we had people that were very sure of the understanding that tyranny is evil and that people trying to own other people is wrong. Yet somehow out of that, we grew another government which allowed for the same process to continue in an even more sinister and subtle way and has gotten such a foothold that people don't even seem to understand what's happening around them. So now I'm going to play for you a little more clip from the film that I've been discussing, A Century of Enslavement. Check out James Corbett's work, but for now here's just a little bit more. John Pierpont Morgan. John Pierpont Morgan, or Pierpont as he prefers to be called, is born in Hartford, Connecticut in 1837 to Junius Spencer Morgan, a successful banker and financier. Morgan rides his father's coattails into the banking business, 
and by 1871 is partnered in his own firm, the firm that was eventually to become J.P. Morgan & Company. It is Morgan who finances Cornelius Vanderbilt's New York Central Railroad. It is Morgan that finances the launch of nearly every major corporation of the period, from AT&T to General Electric to General Motors to DuPont. It is Morgan who buys out Carnegie and creates the United States Steel Corporation, America's first billion-dollar company. It is Morgan who brokers a deal with President Grover Cleveland to save the nation's gold reserves by selling $62 million worth of gold to the Treasury in return for government bonds. And it is Morgan who, in 1907, sets in motion the crisis that leads to the creation of the Federal Reserve. That year, Morgan begins spreading rumors about the precarious finances of the Knickerbocker Trust Company, a Morgan competitor and one of the largest financial institutions in the United States at the time. The resulting crisis, dubbed the Panic of 1907, shakes the U.S. financial system to its core. Morgan puts himself forward as a hero, boldly offering to help underwrite some of the faltering banks and brokerage houses to keep them from going under. After a bout of hand-wringing over the nation's finances, a congressional committee is assembled to investigate the Money Trust, the bankers and financiers who brought the nation so close to financial ruin and that wield such power over the nation's finances. The public follows the issue closely, and in the end a handful of bankers are identified as key players in the Money Trust's operations, including Paul Warburg, Benjamin Strong Jr., and J.P. Morgan. Andrew Gavin Marshall, editor of the People's Book Project, explains. At the beginning of the 20th century, there was an investigation following the greatest of these financial panics, which was in 1907. And this investigation was on what was called the Money Trust, which found that uh, three banking interests, J.P. Morgan, National City Bank, and uh, the City Bank of New York, I believe it was, um, basically controlled the entire financial system. So three banks. And the public hatred towards these institutions was uh, unprecedented. Um, there, there was an overwhelming consensus in the country for establishing a central bank, but there were many different interests uh, in pushing this, and everyone had sort of their own uh, specific purpose behind advocating for a central bank. So to represent uh, the most people, you had uh, farmer interests, populists, progressives, who were advocating a central bank because they couldn't take the recurring panics, but they wanted government control of a central bank. They wanted it to be exclusively under the public control because they despised and feared uh, the New York banks as uh, wielding too much influence. So for them, a central bank would be a way to uh, curb the power of um, these private financial interests. On the other hand, those same financial interests were advocating for a central bank uh, to serve uh, as a, a source of stability for their um, control of the system, also to act as a lender of last resort to them, uh, and so that they would never have to face um, a collapse but also um, in order to exert more control uh, through a central bank, the private New York banking community uh, wanted a central bank under the exclusive control of them. Uh, there's a shocker. So you had all these various different inter interests which converged. Uh, of course, the most influential happened to be the New York financial houses, which were uh, more aligned with European financial houses than they were with any other element in American society. Uh, the main individual behind the founding of the Federal Reserve was Paul Warburg, who was a partner with uh, Kuhn Loeb and Company, European banking house. His brothers um, were prominent bankers in Germany uh, at that time, and he had, of course, close connections with every um, major financial uh, and really big industrial firm in the United States and most of those existing in Europe. Uh, and he was discussing all these ideas with his uh, fellow compatriots um, in advocating for a central bank. In 1910, um, Warburg... Uh, with uh, got the support of a senator named Senator Aldrich, uh, who later, uh, whose family later married into the Rockefeller family. Um, again, I'm sure just a coincidence, but um, uh, Aldrich invited Warburg and another uh, a number of other bankers to a uh, private secret meeting on Jekyll Island, uh, just off the coast of Georgia, uh, where they met in 1910 uh, to discuss the construction 
of a central bank in the United States, but one which, of course, would be owned uh, and serve the interests of the private bankers. Aldrich then, in 1911, presented this as the Aldrich Plan or the Aldrich Bill in the U.S. Congress, uh, and it was actually voted out. The public, suspicious of Senator Aldrich's banking connections, ultimately reject the Jekyll Island Cabal's Aldrich Plan. The Cabal does not give up, however. They simply revise and rename their plan, giving it a new public face, that of Senator Robert Owen and Representative Carter Glass. In the end, the money trust that was behind the Panic of 1907 uses the public's own outrage against them to complete their consolidation of control over the banking system. The newly retitled Federal Reserve Act is signed into law on December 23, 1913, and the Fed begins operations the next year. The big scam. The Jekyll Island, the secret Jekyll Island meetings. Happening not once, but twice. Very interesting story. And the struggle of these central bankers to retake power. It was like a quiet war going on that very few people seem to know ever actually happened. You know, from 1911, when they originally got a foothold, 1910, and then... Um, disappeared for a while. You had that brief period of time that was talked about in the earlier video where uh, President Jackson, was it, managed to get the budget balanced at zero, no debt. And then later we have another panic, another financial panic, and then we see how the bankers managed to take over using these panics on you know multiple occasions. And then through history since, we've seen various... Uh, tumultuous events 2008 was one i discussed and how it affected me when i lost much of what i had put my money into and we see how these bankers of the world just have so much weight to throw around in the public it's always seen like just uh, oh this is just what happened we're trying to deal with this problem yet when you consider that they always seem to make out really well and the Federal Reserve never seems to go to court and get held on trial and have their, um, you know, let's see the books. I know at one time there was a politician who demanded to see the books and wanted to Federal Reserve to show everything they'd done, however, was unsuccessful to my understanding of how things went. There's still no accountability or transparency in what really goes on in these upper layers, these upper echelon layers of dealing with money. So, J.P. Morgan, important name, and then we heard some of these other families that are involved. You can do more research. There's plenty of books out there that will explain who these people are and how they've done what they've done. But the end result is an incredible monopoly on on our energy, on our time, on our bodies. And what that really leaves us with is what do we do about this situation? How do we handle it? How do we make it different? I don't have all those answers for you, unluckily. What I do know is that much like any of the other big problems that we're facing in the world, it's going to take working together. It's going to take many of us coming up with ideas and then brainstorming those ideas, perhaps even having debates about those ideas, and then enacting an action plan of what to do. Uh, Some simple things that I've learned that we can do in our day-to-day life is there is still an advantage to having cash 
um, now that money has become so digital and many, we see how the planners of this world are working towards the cashless society where everything's digital and you could have all your money on a card or perhaps something inside your skin that's scanned. You know, we can see how things are going. It's cashless society. In the meantime, if you can find ways to use cash and sell things for cash that aren't tracked by these people, then we can kind of create a counter economy. There's something called agorism that you can look into. You work for people directly and trade with those people, not necessarily even using money if you don't have to. You can trade uh, energy for goods. You can trade your energy for things you need. However, it's difficult in our society because things have built, so built on the structure. You almost have to be um, completely living off the grid um, and finding your own food and all these things and before you can totally separate from, from banks and money. But there are many people who have found ways to do these things, but it takes much effort. And these things can be done with more leverage the more of us that are working on them. So what we need to do is communicate with one another, to, com- to uh, communicate with people that are in agreement, that understand the importance of freedom, and, and have some uh, agreement amongst ourselves on what's really going on with this money system. So that's what I'm doing is trying to share with you some of my research about how money itself is corrupt in its current form and how it's part of the evil that enslaves us, and to try to help get that concept to others. In the meantime, we still need to use it in many cases. I still have a job. I still collect the money and use it to pay rent and this type of things. Um, I'm working towards becoming more free in that way. However, currently I'm still very much caught in the grind, and I feel it every day. It's frustrating. Sometimes it's hard to see the light. I've watched podcasts and read some books that talk about how we need to change our mind about how we look about money and how we think about money. And I think that's true in order to get better at earning it. However, I think it's also important to understand that at the core, it is a monopoly that's being run by people that are not making moral decisions. And the way it's being used is a form of stealing, that's stealing your energy and my energy. So let's talk about that for just a minute. Oops, there we go. So I put together a little equation. Your time is your energy. So you wake up every morning and you only have so much energy to use throughout the day. But it's yours to use as you please. Some days you choose to use lots of energy. Other days you choose to conserve your energy. That's one of the amazing things about being live and having freedom to choose. So your energy is your time. Your your time is your energy. And in our society, your time becomes your money. How many hours does it take to get enough money to pay for all the things that you need? Those are the essentials. Well, it does take your time. Even if you're very efficient and you get paid $300 an hour, it still takes time to get that money. And that time is your energy. So your money is your energy. So when someone takes your money or requires you to give them your money, they're taking your energy. That's your life energy. You only get so much of it. Like I said, you wake up every day, you only get so much energy. 
You put that energy out, sometimes you get money for it. And people require that money to get goods and services you need. So if someone requires that money who hasn't given you any goods or services, they're stealing from you. And the government claims that they protect you, and that's why you have to pay them the money, which is much like the gangs that ruled neighborhoods and would go around collecting attacks from each person because they were protecting them, some cases protecting them from their own thugs. That's very um, easy to do when you have a huge gang that has overpowering force and weaponry, and you can just go around extorting people. And that's pretty much the state that we're living in in this world right now, which is a form of slavery. And this needs to end. It ends partially by our discussing this and helping others around us to understand this fact and to look at it with open eyes, curious eyes, looking for a solution, but we need an agreement on what's actually happening. And right now, so many people's eyes are closed to the fact that this money system is a scam and it's being run by immoral psychopaths of the world who are looking for greed. And do you want to be part of that greed? Do you want to be an accomplice to their greedy program of taking over the world? Or do you want to be a good person and and help things grow with your time and your energy? So are there ways you can invest your time and energy into things that are purely good, that are not motivated by money? I think it's important to have your mindset in such a state that you purposefully choose often to do things because you want to do them, not because you have to do them. It's good to purposely choose things because they are the right thing to do, not because they're the least expensive thing to do or the easiest thing to do. Oftentimes, we have to sacrifice something that could cost us money in order to help someone or to do the right thing. And these are our energy. And I think it helps to think of it that way. When you consider it your energy, it puts more value on your choices and where you spend that time and money. Should I go out tonight and watch a movie that may be full of um, hypnotic suggestions and other people's advertisements and ideas they want to put in my head? Or should I spend my time doing some research and understanding the world I live in better and learning how to get um, better set up for the future myself? Well, sometimes we do have to make money so we can use that money to leverage ourselves into a better position. So is having a job evil? Is making money evil? Not necessarily in every moment, not everything you do. I'm not saying that. I'm saying that the system itself because it's harmful to people, because it enslaves people, because it gives them a lack of choices, because it harms their freedom, it becomes evil. However, working hard and trying to save, trying to figure out a way to get in a better position so you can help others, so that you can do the right thing, are not evil. So sometimes we have to use um, the tools at our disposal and like I said, the, the money in, in many ways is equal to your energy. So your energy is not evil. 
that's so your money is not necessarily evil. What your time and your energy is is an opportunity to make a creative difference in the world, to be a co-creator of this universe, to put ideas out there. So my advice moving forward for those who are listening is to think about how your choices are affected by money and how you look at it, whether you look at it as something good or something evil, and when can it be good and when can it be evil. I'm not trying to pretend I have all the answers to these questions. I'm sharing with you what I've come up with and the way that I've sort of put it all together. So I'd be welcome to hear people's ideas and comments on the subject of money and good and evil and how we can make this a better place. So for those of you who are interested to get involved with End Evil, I showed you earlier in the show how to get to endevil.life. I recommend going to endevil.life and clicking on donations and getting yourself an End Evil shirt. An End Evil t-shirt is a great conversation starter. It's nice and bright when you're walking out in public. People see that. And I always see when I wear my End Evil shirts, people's eyes kind of going over to the shirt. So far, no one has really um, made a comment yet, but I'm sure it won't be long. I haven't been wearing them for more than a month or so since I got my own, but um, it could be a way, a bridge for someone to start a conversation, could tell them about the End Evil show. And next thing you know, we start to build this community of people who are dedicated to truth and freedom and having care about what happens in the future of truth and what happens with the future of freedom and what happens with the future of humans on this planet. Is it time for us to evolve into better beings or devolve deeper and deeper into slavery and evil practices, which is, seems to be what's going on right now? So shake someone awake and let's start the discussion. Maybe maybe talking with someone about money might be one way to crack the door just a little bit and get folks to look at what's going on. Maybe thinking ourselves about making di different decisions with our energy and our time will help to end evil. But mostly working together, networking. Reach out. I've had a Incredible success in the last year or two, meeting people online, and we're lucky to still have that resource available. So you can check out, I'm on Facebook, I have an End Evil page there, you can look up, and on my page, Chris Jansen, you can communicate with me there through Messenger. You can find my email address on endevil.life, on the Contact Chris tab, so let's get in touch, communicate with some folks. I'd like to get an end evil group going again and an email started. However, that's all in process. And for the time being, I think the best thing you can do to donate to the show is to get an end evil t-shirt. And I have um, exciting news to share with folks. I got my first donation today. Um, cash donation on uh, PayPal from Cindy. Thank you very much, Cindy. This was an amazing, Cynthia, uh, an amazing uh, thing to discover that someone took the time to uh, made a don make a donation to End Evil. I hope someday the End Evil podcast can be 
something that more people are involved with. I need your help. I need folks who are good at advertising. I need folks who want to do research. So reach out to me and get involved with the show. We can make this a community project and it can grow exponentially. So all good things exist in the world and are possible, but we have to put our intention and our energy in that direction. Thanks for listening to the show today, folks. Make you want to get your life straight. I'm going to introduce the places that I venture to. I get your proof of a hip-hop institute. It's the truth. I'm just being hospitable, sitting bull. The chief, I seek the hidden jewels. Some just complain about the status of rap. They say it's average and fact. They wish the 80s was back. I say everything's everything. Nothing stay the same. And yet it is the same. Just given a different name. Money's all that matters to you. You sniffing cane. You need to uplift your brain. Forget the fame. You say you get power if you get money. How you get those if you just a dummy? Just stay on your toes, man. In this world, that's just how it goes, man. And Oakland gotta get with the program. With flows, I wanna control the whole land. You just gotta stay on your toes, man. In this world.